This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. We are thrilled to have three very exciting speakers this evening. I'm going to introduce them sitting in the middle. Shimon Bassar, the writer and critic, Douglas Copeland, the novelist, and the co-director of the Serpentine Galleries, Hans Ulrich Obrist. We're going to start off with the three authors talking about the age of the extreme present, a term that comes up in the book in which they will explain to you. I will be giving them a nod when to finish. They have brief allotted times. When they are done, they will then introduce, one by one, our four expert witnesses. We have the geologist, Mike Ellis, neuroscientist, Dr. Dan Glazer, technologist, Ben Hammersley, and the artist and filmmaker, Sophia Almeria. It now gives me great pleasure to hand over to Schumann Bassar, Douglas Copeland, and Hans Ulrich Obrist. Um, okay, so that clip uh, was shot and uh, released uh, literally just a, a few weeks ago. That is a shark biting through Google's Pacific internet cable. <laughs> that cable uh, basically keeps the global internet working. Pretty much. So. Um, and they've discovered that uh, sharks increasingly are gnawing away at these cables uh, all across the, the planet. Sharks, sharks can actually see or sense electricity. And so for them, it's quite delicious looking, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what Google have had to do and other, uh, other companies is you saw the cable there. They've had to now encase it in nine-inch thick Kevlar, <laughs> which will probably survive the end of the universe. Um, <laughs> But anyway, this is this kind of this is this is this is extraordinary. Uh, it's the it's the stuff of science fiction, and it's happening right now at the bottom of the ocean. And any minute, perhaps this evening, we may find ourselves completely disconnected from the internet, uh, and we will know why. So um, to get things going, I'm going to introduce uh, our dear friend and uh, colleague Douglas Copeland. Uh, who has a PhD in theoretical literature from St. Owens College in Cardiff, which is, in, which is very impressive. Um, so, Doug, please, could you tell us something about <laughs> the origins of the um, age of earthquakes? We're trying to start a meme that actually do have a degree in theoretical literature from St. Owens Cardiff, College, Cardiff. Um, but these things have legs, and it'll be on Wikipedia before you know it. So our goal is that okay. Doug's Wikipedia bio will have changed by the end of this evening, okay. uh, and someone will have uploaded okay. his PhD. Uh, I will say, back in 2006, I was dragged kicking and screaming into doing a, a biography for Penguin as part of a series. This was of Marshall McLuhan, who was this sort of crusty dad-like figure from... Toronto, Ontario, I don't know if that's sort of ringing any bells, um, who through a, a chain of circumstances that were utterly unexpected and could never ever be repeated, was able to see the internet 40, 50 years before it actually uh, existed. And 
the book is called You Know Nothing of My Work, and it's based on uh, McLuhan's line in the Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall, where he tells off a know-it-all in a lineup in a Manhattan theater. Uh, he had a poetic way of describing what later went on to be called PayPal or eBay or eHarmony.com, but because he didn't know the interface, he always sounded a little bit strange and crazy. And then he had some genuine... Uh, he had a brain tumor removed in 68, and he lost his mojo, for lack of a better word. And, uh, and then he sort of became forgotten by history, and then came the internet, and boom, suddenly he's back again. And uh, part of his legacy... Uh, is these books that you see up there, which I think Hans Ulrich will be talking about a bit more shortly. We, together, we began discussing McLuhan. I'm going to guess five, six, seven years ago. I don't remember anymore. And we began discussing what it feels like to be living here in the 21st century. And we realized that there were all these sensations and experiences that exist now that didn't even exist back in the 1990s. And so, uh, uh, <laughs> so a sort of our soft objective became to figure out what is it that makes sense now that wouldn't even have made sense, it's, uh, sense 15, 20 years ago. We have this thing that's called the extreme present, which I think is what we're all living now. And the extreme present is, for me... The future, growing up, the future was always way over there. And then around 2000, the future was there. And then recently, the future is there. And it's this sort of logarithmic experience where, oh, we're actually living inside the future. It's not out there anymore. It's here, and we're living it in real time. And what does that feel like? And uh, what are the words we use to express this? Um... Am I forgetting anything here? No. no. Um, so this is all part of an, uh, an experiment, coming up with words that don't exist at the moment. We're here tonight. Uh, the three of us did the book. I think that might be all I have to say. I think that's great. <laughs> Let's keep them wanting more. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Doug. Um, next, I'd like to uh, uh, welcome... Uh, invite Hans-Ulrich Obrist. Uh, and as uh, Bettina Korek says, books furnish lives. And uh, uh, Hans-Ulrich is going to talk a little bit about the form and the content of the, of the relationship between the form and the content uh, in a book form. So please could you... Yeah, thank you so much, Roman, and thank you all so much. And thanks to Intelligence Square, to Robert, many thanks also to Jana Peel. We are very, very excited to be here tonight and talk about a book and also what it means, you know, a book in the 21st century. And obviously Bettina Korek uh, answers in her famous quote, Anthony Powell, who says books do furnish a room. Now, one of the things which is interesting is that mostly books are written by one author, sometimes you have two authors. I mean, Deleuze Guattari had this extraordinary ping-pong uh, going on, and they wrote okay. uh, Mille Plateau. Uh, I think in English one can say two is a company, three is a crowd. Um, and in a way, uh, in our constellation, uh, it's very fascinating because Stark said in the very first meeting we had about the book that the eye that appears in the book is not us, but the voice of the culture today, which I think has a lot to do with how this uh, co-authorship Works. I also wanted to come back to St. Owen uh, because it's really significant, the thing with Cardiff. Um, not only that it enters the Wikipedia page of Doug, because it's almost an Umberto Eco type of story, because it's also this incredible lost manuscript of Doug in St. Owen, because we can really say everything of Doug's work started with St. Owen. We can say that the age of earthquake started in St. Owen. We very much hope that by making this for the first time public, somehow this lost manuscript um, can be found. Books... Uh, furnish a room. I mean, in a way, what is interesting, we think, is this idea also that the book uh, as a medium has very often been uh, uh, something which goes far beyond linearity. It's sort of, I mean, already with Tristram Shandy, we have this idea of a conceptual book. We have throughout the 20th century the idea of artists doing artist books and inventing layouts. And I think it's very important to say that Doug, before uh, becoming so well-known as a writer, 
has also been a very seminal visual artist and has done, there was a retrospective actually of his work in Vancouver. We met all in this show and a big part of the book was actually written around this exhibition. The Diamond Generation, Doug says, shares an irreverence for traditional notions of authorship and cultural heritage, something that is manifested in their work. They have instant knowledge and technological know-how at their fingertips and they rely on digital social platforms to showcase their new ideas and culturally iconoclastic approaches. So we can say that in a way, this attempt, here you have Alex Mackindolan, became also the image for the cover, who is another artist of the 89 plus generation, sort of this attempt to map and make a cartography of this amazing generation of artists born. And 89 as a year has to do with the fact that it's the year where Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web. And it's interesting that at the beginning, he actually didn't call it the World Wide Web, it was called Inquire. So it had to do with research from the very outset. And so 89, also the year, of course, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the year where GPS was invented. Um, and so in a way, this idea of, because one can never curate the future as a curator, because only artists know where art goes. A curator can only, in a way, curate the extreme present. And 89 plus, we see Moncaste, which we try to do as an archive, as an ever-growing archive, is an attempt at that. And so we can say that the book is a group show. An elegism is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a newly invented word, uh, and often to describe newly invented phenomena, experiences, uh, and radical changes in, in reality. Related to this, uh, this uh, Annabelle Huxley, uh, from uh, a wonderful colleague at Penguin, sent us this uh, just two days ago. Uh, it's a news story. Um, a group of authors were con- are, con- are concerned that a variety of words relating to nature were culled from the Oxford Junior Dictionary in 2007. They're protesting at the loss of healthy outdoor words in favor of language that is, quote, associated with the increasingly interior, solitary childhoods of today. The deletions, according to Robert McFarlane, included acorn, adder, ash, beech, Bluebell, buttercup, catkin, conker, cowslip, signet, dandelion, fern, hazel, heather, heron, ivy, kingfisher, lark, mistletoe, nectar, newt, otter, pasture, and willow. The words that are taking their place in the new edition included attachment, block graph, blog, broadband, bullet point, celebrity, chat room, committee, cut and paste, MP3 player, and voicemail. <laughs> kind of dismal, isn't it? <laughs> God, okay. <laughs> Anyone detect a, a, a loss of poetics from the black to the red? Well, I thought it was a hoax at first, and it's real. I mean, as if there aren't enough le- electrons in the file to like add a few more words. I don't get it. Okay. And... We actually have uh, the inventor of one of the, the words that I think has uh, a few years made it into the Oxford English Dictionary, the word podcast. Uh, we have the inventor of podcast here this evening. Um, so we can blame it all on him <laughs> in a few minutes' time. Um, so one thing uh, amongst many things that McLuhan has taught us in our various conversations and readings and discussions over the last few years is that reality is usually one step ahead of the language we already possess to try and describe it. As such, such, we tend to misunderstand the present moment as it's unfurling in front of us and around us. So, new words and new terms must be constantly invented to fully apprehend the volatile changes taking place to us, to our values and to our surroundings. And this becomes even more important when the extreme present seems to be introducing new experiences and new feelings almost every hour with every new meme that appears and disappears, appears and disappears. So we've just picked out a few examples uh, from our book. There are 28 in in total, uh, and hopefully uh, you'll get to see the the whole lot uh, in the book itself. But here are a few that... um, I think, in, begin to indicate the new texture of life. I think when, when one of the, the... The word texture has come up a lot in our discussions uh, in terms of 
trying to understand uh, what, not only what the extreme present is, but what it's doing to us. And so we feel quite strongly that the texture of our lives is going through, has already gone through, and is going through, and will continue to go through, quite radical changes. Yeah. You must also remember Cedric Price, the legendary uh, English architect, one of the great, uh, great architects of the 20th century, teacher of so many people, teacher of Zaha Hadid and Rem Kohlhaas, etc., etc., um, who always said, uh, the late Cedric Price always said, uh, the urgency about inventing neologism, almost like a daily practice. And he is a great inspiration for this book. So uh, here's one of our, our, our new terms, narrative drive, noun. The belief that a life without a story is a life not worth living. Ironically, accompanied by the fact that most people cannot ascribe a story to their lives. Well, sort of the world that I grew up in, maybe you too, that you're born, you have some grand adventure, and along the way you had an arc or a narrative to it. And I think that's something that's sort of clobbered in Mm. in the age of the internet, where... uh, so much of what the internet is about is interruption. And there is this thing that industrial behaviorologists have discovered, it's the two and a half minute rule, uh, which is to say that we have this thing that's hardwired into our reptile brain, everyone on earth, that every two and a half minutes we want to do something new. And in the old days, meaning before 1995, you'd be sitting reading a book like, oh, I want to do something new. Oh, nothing else to do. I'll read a book. <laughs> and you just, you'd have this thing called continuity. And then the thing with the internet is that it completely feeds that two and a half minute impulse completely. Email, like, like work, uh, cat, kitten video, and, and just, and, and what happens is over a period of time, you enter what's called interruption driven memory. And the more interruptions that you experience during your day, the overall net effect over a a larger period is that time seems to go much more quickly. And one of the textures of our modern era is that time is just going so quickly. What is happening? And that's an underlying reason for why that might be happening. And then, um, for us, we could probably say that every, every postulation that we put forward, the opposite also exists. Um, the extreme present is oxymoronic. The 21st century, we 21st believe, century. is full of it's oxymoronic. Yeah. So in the, at, at the same time, as, as Doug has just explained, that we feel like time is getting um, faster, quicker, more ag- aggregated, uh, we have time snack, which is a verb. Often annoying moments of pseudo-leisure created by computers when they stop to save a file or to search for software updates or merely to mess with your mind. As we all know, at that point, time slows down unbearably. <laughs> it's true. And if you added it all up, it would be a shameful. It would be like three months of your life you've been <laughs> sent watching a little colored wheel go around on the screen. The yeah. wheel of death, as you yeah. once called it, yes. Um, smoopid. Adjective. Smart and stupid. Smoopidity defines the mental state wherein we acknowledge that we've never been smarter as individuals, and yet somehow we've never felt stupider. We now collectively inhabit a state of stupidity. Example, yes, I know I was able to obtain a list of all Oscar winners from 1952 in three-tenths of a second, yet it makes me feel smoopid that I didn't waste two hours visiting the local library to obtain that list. In our smoopid world, the average IQ is now 103, but it feels like it's 97. One possible explanation for smoobidity is that people are generally far more aware that that they were ever, than they ever were of all the information that they don't know. The weight of this fact overshadows huge advances made in knowledge accumulation and pattern recognition skills honed by online searching. The fact is that I am now smoopid. We're all smoopid, and the future is even smoopider. Yeah, what's funny is people, it always comes down to phone numbers. Like, I used to remember my phone number. I used to know your phone number. Why this obsession with phone numbers? They're hideous. They're stupid. They're boring. Why would you ever want to know it? Just touch my machine and make it go away. Um, it, you know, I, you were lucky to be on this stage. We remember the way things used to be. And every day there's increasingly few of us. <laughs> 
And so, I mean, I, I used the example of the Conestoga wagons going across the Americas. And by the time they got to Illinois, the grand piano was thrown off the wagon. They got to Nebraska, and the bookcase got thrown off, and the books, and the furniture. And then you would arrive at the promised land, but you have only the clothing on your back. And I kind of get jealous of these 89 plus. They, they don't have any furniture to throw off the wagon. Uh, they, they're not going to sit back and mourn the loss of something. They're just going to get on with their lives. And I think that's maybe the one way to survive. I'll throw in one McLuhanism. Mm -hmm. uh, if he called the Internet era the Maelstrom. And then if the Maelstrom, I think it's from a, a, a Norse saga. Uh, the sailors get pulled into the vortex that goes into the sea. And one of the sailors survives only because he held on to a wine casket that was light and it kept him afloat. And, and Marshall said that in order to stay sane inside the maelstrom, you have to look for patterns, pattern recognition. And you may not necessarily find any patterns, but it's the act of seeking them that somehow allows you to stay afloat when things are kind of going crazy like right now. Absolutely. And two, two last uh, terms from our, our glossary. Um, Deselfing. Noun, willingly diluting one's sense of self and ego by plastering the internet with as much information as possible. And undeselfing, noun, also known as reselfing, the attempt, usually frantic and futile, to reverse the deselfing process. It's like, I can't believe guys put dick pics on the internet. What are they thinking? They're going to go to their first job interview. Well, we actually found this compromise. Oh, God, it's over. <laughs> it, it's around, it's the. Everything is so eternal now. I don't know. We weren't built for that. That's another thing. Uh, one of the great schisms of the 21st century is the difference between people who want progress and people who really don't want progress. It, it's people who believe in eternity versus people who only believe in the future. And that's sort of playing itself out you know, in, the, in, the, in wars and politics and the way we look at nationality For example, how do you design nationality? You're only a citizen of a nation if you're willing to go to war and die for it, or at what point do you... You know, these are some, some pretty large issues that, again, uh, well, it's, it's the extreme present, which leads us to... The, which leads us to... Um, so, hopefully that gives you uh, some idea of... The, the, some of the questions and the references and the, the kind of heritage that, that we've been tapping into uh, in our book. Um, you may also find that I think we are, we, are, we are sort of curious intellectual generalists. The book is a new history of how we're changing and how we're feeling about those changes uh, in the extreme present. Uh, and what we thought would be really wonderful this evening, and, uh, and we're so grateful that this was able to happen, is that we're going to pick out a number, of, number of, these, of these topics, of these themes, of the texture of life today, uh, and invite our four special expert guests to go into a little bit more depth. Um, so it gives us great pleasure to welcome our first guest up on the stage. Um, we have the Director of Climate and Landscape Change Science at the British Geolog Geological Survey, Dr. Mike Ellis. Will you please join in welcoming Dr. Mike Ellis? So I'm here kind of wearing the hat of the Anthropocene, or the Anthropocene, and I need to get a quick view mm. of, of hands-up thing. Who's heard? of the Anthropocene, or the Anthropocene. That's good. So you know it's a proposed, for those of you who don't, it's a proposed new geological era, the, the age of, of humans. Um, and, and it comes out of the geological discipline, although ironically, it was, it was uh, proposed by an atmospheric chemist. And so I want to quickly say, this Kevlar enveloped cable Uh, that is the internet connection across the Pacific, um, this, is, this is great because one of the things we're always searching for in, in the context of the Anthropocene is 
is a deposit, is a signal of the geological, uh, the, the geological evidence of the Anthropocene. And this Kevlar cable, which, as you rightly said, will last a long time and will get covered in sediments, will be an Anthropocene mm. unit. And the fact that it is the Internet, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I was very curious because, you know, talking about neologism, um, I visited last week James Lovelock in Dorset and we had a long conversation about, you know, his basically this sort of invention of the word Gaia, which William Golding, his neighbor, the writer, helped him to find it. Uh, and I was very curious in terms of your research on the Anthropocene, what was your view on, um, on Gaia and on Lovelock uh, and maybe also your own neologism? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I can come up with my own new term. Although, I, actually, I, I will. I will. But before I get to that, um, Gaia, yes, it comes with a lot of baggage because it's, it's horribly misunderstood, largely by, by folks who are not geologists. It, it, it supposes that the Earth is a, a nurturing, um, abiotic mechanism that takes care of us. But in reality, the Earth is an objective thing uh, that sits between the sun and the edge of the uh, solar system and doesn't give a hoot about us. Um, ironically, the, the, the thing that, the Gaia that is beginning to emerge is the Anthropocene, because the Anthropocene is, is all about us. And the only, the only bit of the Earth that is, I mean, literally, you know, we are, you, know, you can grab our flesh here, and you are holding a piece of the Earth that used to be part of some mountain chain or some dinosaur, whatever. The only bit of the earth that cares about and takes care of, of the earth is us. It's not the planet itself, it's, it's us. So Gaia has, is, is going to sort of see its day, I think, and be replaced by something that is, is a lot more exciting and, and emergent, which is the concept of the Anthropocene, uh, the notion that humans are geological processes as much as, as, as earthquakes are or volcanoes, um, and, you, and, and the corollary of that is that, that our society and our, our, our legal um, um, practice, our regulatory processes, those are all natural processes that emerge from the Anthropocene. Um, uh, uh, two, a month ago, I was at the Royal Ontario Museum going through the fossil department, and they had pieces of uh, shale from the Burgess Shale and we were looking at the remains of soft tissue animals from about a billion years ago, and they could, you could actually tell their structure. And yeah. well, I don't think we're going to be around in a billion years. But if aliens sort of fly on, look at the planet, what is going to be our biggest, I guess, anthropocenic? Uh, ta-da moment. What, what's going to say, oh, humans were here more than anything? Uh, that's a good question. In fact, it's one that we posed to ourselves. You know, if, if an alien came to visit in 100 million years, well, would they actually see evidence of us? And that's what we're battling with. Because so the whole process of making the Anthropocene a bona fide uh, um, geological epoch is answering that question. Are we leaving a permanent record? Is it something that's transient that will disappear you know, in the next few millennia or whatever? And my view is that, indeed, it will survive, and, and we are leaving deposits that are human-made. So most of London is, is, has got many, many layers, as you all know. You've got a Roman layer, you've got uh, um, um, early Saxon layers, and we are building more and more things on top of, of, of all the layers that comprise London. And that's the same for any megacity. Most megacities in the world, especially those on the coast, and especially those in China, are sinking. And so they're going to get covered in, in sediments eventually, and so those will be preserved in the geological record. And the aliens will come down and point to some cliff that has been eroded by rivers and whatnot and say, look, there is Shanghai. Um, and look, above there, there's, um, you know, it could be Beijing or, or the next city beyond Shanghai. I mean, geological time frames are just terrifying. They're so long. There's the Kimberley mine in South Africa. There's those marble quarries that you see in Italy. They're these massive cubes just seemingly plucked out of the planet. Those are going to be around for a while. They're the Kevlar cables. Yeah. I mean, is there anything we haven't actually left a trace on? No. In fact, there's only 23% of the Earth's surface 
that is, is untouched, is, is, is in some way um, doesn't have the presence of humans, and it probably does, actually. And those, that 23% is, is in northern Russia and northern Canada. So you can understand why that's basically untouched. But no, everything else has is, is, is been touched by us. Um, we, we're going to move at a pro-accelerated rate, um, and we, we're going to uh, have the pleasure of, of, of having Mike stay on, on, on stage. As it says here on the left-hand side, we haven't just changed the structure of our brains. Um, so we've been talking about the planet. So from one imperceptible scale to, to another, uh, that of, of, of this other uh, globule uh, uh, that that uh, is, uh, is, is supposedly at the center of us. So to talk about the ways in which the Internet may be changing our brains, will you please welcome the neuroscientist and director of Science Gallery London at King's College London, Dr. Dan Glazer. Thank you. It's impossible to understand the brain uh, without understanding the world. And, and mm. let me explain briefly what I mean by that. Um, uh, if, for example, you're somebody who studies motor control, that's the bits of the brain that control movements, it would be impossible to have an account of the movement control cortex. By the way, that's the bit of your cortex which, if it's damaged, you're paralyzed, right? We know from strokes. It would be impossible to understand the functioning of that bit of brain without knowing about friction, right? Why? Because that bit of the brain has been designed to control movement, and I'm going to model how I'm pushing your arm with the knowledge that at a certain point friction is going to run out, I'm going to slip off, and I would have pre-tensioned the muscles that oppose that movement to stop myself from flying off. There is knowledge of friction in the brain. Now, if you didn't know about the world, you couldn't possibly know about the brain. So because the brain models everything, all of culture is included in our sense of ourselves and how we respond to things. And that's one of the reasons why, actually, Science Gallery London and other places, we believe that understanding the brain is too important to be left to neuroscientists, in other words, an introverted account of the brain, one that only thinks about what's inside the head, is necessarily incomplete. In order to understand the brain, we have to understand that which the brain represents, which is culture. Mm. And so we need proper interdisciplinary projects to understand ourselves. We're not going to get it from an introverted thing. So yes, uh, the Internet is changing our brains, as transportation systems do and lots of other sorts of things. Does it fundamentally rewire us? I think the answer to that is probably no. Um, there is an inside-outside thing which might be interesting, and I just wanted to... I did type in some words just before we went upstairs. Do you want to pop them up? Yeah. So here are three types of receptors in your brain. So the uh, brain works with electricity but also with chemistry, and there are these little chemicals that float around. And here are three classes of receptor in your brains, the cannabinoid receptors, the nicotinic receptors, and the opioid receptors. There are all kinds of other sorts. Do you notice anything about those words? Yes. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that these receptors in our brain are named after things out in the world. Okay? We don't have cannabis, nicotine, or opium floating around in our head. They're out in the world. The reason those things work is because they bind directly to things inside our head. And in a sense, our brains are short-circuited chemically speaking, by those, those quantities. Because normally the good feelings that you get from a job well done, uh, a beautiful face, uh, a cat movie perhaps in your case, Douglas, um, uh, is from an en endogenous stimulus. But there are these exogenous stimuli, these things out in the world that, that hijack that. And the logical extreme of that is the experiment that was done in the 1960s with the rats and the pleasure levers. Some of you will be familiar with it. Do we shake the show of hands? Who's familiar with the rat pleasure lever experiment? Right. So there's a pleasure center in the brain, and if you connect that to a, an electrode, and you connect that electrode to a, a lever, and you allow the rat to press the lever, the rat will starve, will die of thirst, because anything... Uh, is less pleasurable than the direct stimulation of the pleasure center. So an electrode like that into your brain would truly short-circuit mm -hmm. our sense of selves, and we would stop interacting, and we would sit in this solipsistic... Uh, By the way, as a brief aside, and this is not uh, a completely reliable story, it was tried in humans a bit, and uh, they, they found the pleasure center in the humans and stimulated it directly with an electrode. And there were two things they found. The first was that when humans were asked to describe what that was like, they said it was the closest to an orgasm that they'd ever experienced without an actual orgasm. 
although I think I still prefer mine the traditional way. Uh, and the second thing... So 20th uh, century. Yes, indeed. <laughs> the second thing that happened was that very rapidly the experimental subjects developed strong and uncontrollable feelings of romantic love towards the experimenters, and, which is true. And the ethical problems with the series of experiments were so great that they were never continued. So our knowledge of this is, is, is limited. But I do think you could hijack the brain that way. But if we rely on touch, feel, visual input, and so on, my sense is that we will compensate with our regulatory mechanisms and that the difference between now and the last century is probably no greater than the difference between someone living in a village in 16th century Britain and somebody living in London. And that the differences are not that great. So I don't, I don't think there's a fundamental rewiring going on. Why does my brain hurt? <laughs> <laughs> Too many words. Um, we're talking... What do you think about the notion of the self or the notion of the individual? Um, I, I, people of a certain era, certain generation, uh, grew up uh, with sort of that narrative arc aspect. Like your life's a story. It's the beginning, a middle, and end. And I have found that that sort of been replaced with the sensation that you're really just one unit among seven billion other units, which is sort of a, it's a blow to the ego. Uh, at the same time, people in what we, I don't know, the underdeveloped world, I don't know what the correct term is, they're actually, they're getting online. The future, I think, is the correct well, the term. Well, the future. They're getting online. Wow, suddenly they get to join the human race. So they're all, we're one in seven billion too. And uh, I think what we have on screen right there, um, that's actually the world's first selfie. It was taken in 1839. Uh, in terms of socialization, I do think that younger people do inhabit, experience the world in a way that seems to be perceptually different. And perception is sort of the key word here. Um, is there at any level a change in the way perception might be changing uh, in myself? I mean, my we all know what it feels whether you have a Kindle or real books, like where's my attention span? Why is time going more quickly? Is there anything to any of this? What, what, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the oldest philosophical experiment that most of us came up with, and most of us did, um, is whether the color red looks the same to me as it does to you. And I do think that it, it is, in principle, impossible to establish that, and, and even more so across generations. I do think there is kind of an obsession with consciousness and our sense of ourselves. Perhaps it's Western and perhaps it's present. But as a neuroscientist, uh, this funny story we tell about ourselves, this confabulation, this, this stuff we make up about our brains, is, is of relatively little interest. I mean, the cortex is the bit of the brain that we're most interested in in this kind of context. By the way, to your challenge, when I was sitting down there, I did come up with a neologism. Uh, which is IQTs. Right? IQTs are people who have intra- attractive intelligence. IQTs. <laughs> and uh, in our... Uh, in nice. Our, yeah? And I think we're quite obsessed with IQTs. Um, but uh, that deals with a very superficial view of the brain, the cortex. Okay? Uh, much of our brain and the way we interact with the world is based on the same things that most animals do, the five Fs classically, right? Fighting, foraging, feeding, fleeing, and reproduction. And, uh, you know, the cortex, sorry, the cortex tells a story about itself which is very convincing. We are seduced by our own accounts of ourselves, but it's trivial to demonstrate that the stories we tell about ourselves are false. Our own sense of introspection is entirely flawed, and there are plenty of ways that you can demonstrate that. But the, my favorite one is you just give people a subliminal cue which biases them towards one of a pair of answers. You ask them a set of questions, you flash a light that they're not aware of but makes them choose one or the other thing. This can be done very easily in a laboratory situation. And then you present them with the answers that they gave and you ask them why they chose them. People always have a story. They can always tell you exactly why they chose that one and that one and that one and that one. But they didn't choose it. So your sense of your own choice uh, is, is, uh, is entirely flawed. So I think introspection is a very unreliable instrument uh, for these kinds of purposes. I had a question about um, the brain and the internet because one of the things, I mean, there is a popular claim that the internet would have a bigger effect or impact on adolescent brains than on adult brains. And obviously there's the work of Katrin Mills who worked on that and uh, who spoke at our Serpentine Marathon. And obviously, you know, if you look at a generation of artists growing up with the internet, it's something, you know, highly interesting. So I was wondering your view on that. Uh, 
I don't, I'm not sure I know what a lesser brain is. I mean, you know, IQ tests were invented uh, as a reproducible mechanism for measuring how well you do at IQ tests, right? I mean, they, they, you know, and they're very good at that. I mean, how you do in an IQ test is very good at predicting how you'll do in an IQ test. And by the way, that's non-trivial because most measures of performance depend a lot on what time of day it is or how good you're feeling. Or, so it's a very robust measure of a thing in itself. But it is an entirely introspective measure and uh, doesn't correlate well, I think, with, with human worth. And I'm, I'm not at all sure that the, the uh, internet is driven by high IQ thoughts. I mean, the thing that seems to me the problem with the internet uh, is, is twofold, but the principal one is that at the moment its development is driven by advertising. And of all the cultural conceits, you know, of all of the high principles of, of human endeavor that, you know, to, to choose as an organizing principle for the future technology of the planet, uh, advertising would seem to be the, almost the, the worst I mean, right? And, and, and so, uh, but, but the only comforting thing about that is that it's supposed to be selling to everybody. So I think we're probably okay. Um, what does advertising map on to? If you go back to the jungle, what, what, is, what was advertising in a primordial context? Was it fleeing? Was it food? What, foraging. Foraging, okay. Right. So, I mean, uh, it, it's supposed to be appealing, uh, I think. And, and it, it, it feeds our need for shiny and new. Uh, that, that outlier effect which we can demonstrate in, actually we can demonstrate before the birth. There's a weird series of experiments done by uh, uh, developmental psychologists who have children. It's very hard to get ethics for this, but there have been cases where you can literally measure a child's response before it's wholly out. Right? So as the baby emerges, they're there with the cue cards trying to see what, um, uh, to get the truly naive experience. But um, it's clear from very uh, early experience, experience of very, very young children, Seeking for the new, uh, I don't like the word hardwired, but I'll go with that. Hardwired, are seeking for the new, and I think advertising must play for that. And just one very last question, just bring it back to you, uh, Mike. So you're part of this Anthropocene working group, Um, and and I wondered whether uh, if you could very very quickly just tell us when uh, this working group will be making its uh, announcement. And then, Dan, would there, is there anything similar in the neurological uh, w- um, world, or the neurological discipline, where a working group has come together to somehow measure and then give a kind of verdict about uh, this uh, a sort of epoch, epochal change? Uh, Mike, could you just tell us very quickly how, when the Anthropocene Working Group will... The Anthropocene Working Group will present a report to the International Commission on Stratigraphy in 2016, and uh, a lot of very, very grey-haired gentlemen, and it is largely gentlemen, will, will ponder this and take a long time to make a decision, and the world will have moved on by then anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah, is- well, so, so we're, the, there's quite a lot of press at the moment about the European Connectome Project and the big Obama initiative on the brain. People have short memories. The 1990s, uh, when I was doing my PhD in neuroscience, was the decade of the brain. Uh, we asked for an extension because <laughs> we hadn't solved it quite. But um, I guess the, 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 in, in, the, in, in 1897, Freud wrote uh, uh, a text called The Project, the project for the, and I'm going to misquote its exact title, Physiological Basis of Psychology. It was known as the project. Mm. Interestingly, amusingly for Freud, he suppressed it uh, or repressed it in his (laughs) lifetime. And the reason why he repressed it, he refused to have it published, was because he believed that we weren't there yet. We weren't able to give uh, a physiological account, a biological account of what thinking is like. And in 1997, the New York Academy of Sciences reconvened to see whether we'd got there yet. Right? Mm. Have we now got a physiological basis for psychology? Um, And the answer was no. We're still not there. So I think we may need another 100 years. Can I finish with a Freud gag, if I may? Uh, The the scientist scientist who said that the problem with Freud's theories is that they're not testicle. I'm sorry, (laughs) testicle. Boom, boom. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very, very much, uh, Dan Glazer. Hurtling onwards, 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 like a, 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 an asteroid uh, 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 heading uh, tragically towards us. Uh, our, next, uh, our next guest to talk about um, new and unforeseen social changes being wrought by the Internet and, and these new technologies. Um, we have the Internet technologist, journalist, author, and broadcaster. And please, whatever you do, do not 
do not remind him that he invented the word podcast. He carries it around his neck like an albatross. Will you please uh, welcome Ben Hammersley? So, yet it is the feeling of uniqueness that convinces us we have souls. Individual may, in fact, be a form of brain mutation not evenly spread throughout the population. Many people are happy to belong to a group, any kind of group, and someone who doesn't is a threat. The odd thing about right now is that people are more connected than they've ever been before, except they've been tricked into thinking they're isolated. How did that happen? Relationship. Have kids, want kids, ethnicity, body type, height, faith, smoke, drink. The internet is cancelling all political parties. The internet now occupies the slot in your head, once occupied by religion or politics. Who would ever have thought that? But what if your sense of community is now something you visit at 11.30 p.m. on a website? At the moment, we don't know which will triumph, the individual or the mob. It might be the biggest question of this century. Individual or mob, Ben? Neither, really. I think what, we've, uh, what you've sort of touched on here is, is I think, one of the fundamental um, miracles of the Internet over the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. it, when we look back in, in 50 or 100 years' time, when we, when we write the history of the early years of the Internet, I think one of the... The most striking things to us won't be the revolution that it's, that it's engendered in, in different industries or different forms of media or something like that, but really the fact that it has, it's made, the Internet has made it incredibly difficult to be lonely on a very fundamental basis. You know, to use the old gag, it's, it's basically now impossible to be the only gay in the village. <laughs> You know, if you, were, if you were growing up in a small place in Switzerland or in, you know, in the Midlands where I grew up or something like that, where, you know, somewhere a little bit rubbish. Um, <laughs> nice chocolate, cuckoo clocks, but whatever, right? Um, you know, and, you, and you, you looked around and you felt yourself to be different or you felt yourself to have, you had different interests than the other kids in the, in the village or whatever. Or you were, you were different because of your sexuality or different because of your ethnicity or different because of whatever it was. Then you were really on your own. You might have made some connections through literature. You may have made some connections through art. But mostly you made connections by getting up and going to a city and joining the people who were like you. And what the internet has enabled is that, is that you, it's very difficult to be alone if you don't want to be alone anymore. You know, if your interests are one in a million, that means there's 1,300 of you on Facebook, which by definition means there are five groups of whom three groups hate the other two groups, right? <laughs> you know, there's, there's, it, it's very, very difficult to, um, to be apart from people who are different, you know, who are the same as you now. Now, what we're seeing here, I think, in your statements about, you know, the, the Internet has killed political parties or religions or so on is that's not actually the case. What it has done, though is completely changed the mappings of people's interests to the, to the regular and traditional institutions. So it's not that people aren't finding themselves members of political parties. What they're finding is that, or, or finding themselves without political groupings, it's just that the political groupings have become detached from the parties, as an example. So there have been some very good experiments over the past few um, European elections where uh, the European University Institute in Florence, which is a a big political science postdoc post place where I was a, a fellow last year. And they, they've, they've done these experiments where they've created uh, websites where they've um, encoded the manifestos of all of the European political parties. And you can go onto these sites and you can ask, you answer lots of questions. And at the end of it, it'll tell you which political party across Europe you're most like. And in one ways, it's a sort of a Nazi detector but, uh, and a Nazi dating service, to be frank, because it, it then puts you in touch with other people who are like you. But, but what you find is when you do these things, you find that the political party that you actually agree with is probably not the political party that you think you support because your interests and the, and the institutional groups that you are part of, and the same thing with religion and the same thing with culture and so on, that the two things have become detached. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why we 
especially at evenings like this, we have this sort of militant nostalgia kick in, which is really a sort of a slow piercing whine from old people that they don't, they don't really understand the, word, the world anymore. Define old. Anybody to my left. <laughs> it would seem. <laughs> Oh, he can't make his mind up. <laughs> I mean, we, we're forever um, having these sorts of debates about, you know, what, does the, what has the internet done to us? Isn't the internet, you know, doing something, something? And, and they're almost always nonsense debates, simply because everybody has a different definition of what the internet is, which is... The internet to everybody are the, like the 20, the 20 websites that they go to 98% of the time. And they see the whole world through that reflection of those 20 websites that they themselves go to and think that that is indicative of everybody in the planet's interests and shallowness of thought. So if you spend your entire time on the Daily Mail online, then you think that the entire world is spending their time on the Daily but Mail online. But they do. <laughs> no. <laughs> And, and no fact, one will put their hands up to that. No, I know. <laughs> but and so when you so then there's this sort of wailing and gnashing of teeth because they they extrapolate their own personal experience and believe that everybody is inside their in group, and that's just not the case. And in fact, everybody now everybody is, is within a group, and but what we've seen is those groups are now more true to that individual and those group people within that group, but also more disparate because there are now so many possibilities for for getting together with people who are just like you. Fantastic. We're going to keep hurtling um, and, uh, and invite our, our next guest. And just so you know, we, a lot of these uh, topics and things that have been touched upon, we hopefully will expand um, in the mind sourcing section, which will happen immediately after uh, Sophia has come up on stage. So just to, just to remind you, we're going to ask you to come up to the mic- microphone um, form an orderly queue. Those, those of you who are British will know how to do that naturally. The rest of you just follow the British. Um, and then uh, we'll be fielding... The internet uh, doesn't have queuing, right? That, that's interesting about it. Sorry? The, the internet doesn't have queuing. But I mean, just, you know, queuing up to, you know, it's just not a concept which... But the good developed. bits have moderation, so yeah, we'll let him do it. it. <laughs> so uh, we're going to ask you to, 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 to form an orderly or disorderly queue, as you, as you prefer, at the microphone, and then deliver your, your question, which must fit within 12 seconds, and if, if it doesn't, we will cut you off. Um, so uh, to, our, our last guest uh, is Sophia Almeria, and we wanted to uh, invite Sophia to talk about how... Uh, the creative, uh, or one's creative imagination, our capacity to visualize the environment that we're inhabiting and, and, and residing in. Um, how has that been changed, is changing? Um, so will you please join in welcoming our, our, our final guest this evening, the artist, filmmaker, and writer, Sophia Almeria. Before you press play, just before you press play, um, I just wanted to give a little bit of clarity before this uh, little piece that I wrote. It's a little ditty, which is sort of expressing my generalized cosmic horror at being um, a person who is technically at the very uh, early edge of millennial, uh, being a millennial. And um, the only thing that I am an expert in, if anything, is those creepy feelings that I have of having witnessed this particular moment. Um, I think my generation are probably the only ones who perhaps had enough spare time in their childhoods to obsessively play around with the different screensavers on a floppy disk or, you know, stuff like that. So this is um, partially about that and partially about uh, that which is coming. So Sorry, please. So just quickly, Sophia, does that mean that Ben, who is on your left, is actually an old person in comparison to you. Everyone on my left, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also now elderly and I have, you know, gray hair and everything, so <laughs> I'm on the stage for a reason. I'm part of the club. Okay. <laughs> I'm of a generation who are more comfortable typing than talking. We're better online, safer in internet, and we've been witness 
to a great unblinding, a transformation. Just search, you'll see. It begins many different ways. In 1994, a girl hunt and pecked Sailor Mercury into a Netscape browser. That was her beginning. Others asked Jeeves for directions to the sex shop in Ipswich or uploaded <laughs> X-Files slash fic, causing Mulder on Skinner to become a gay subgenre. Many would spiral into hypochondrial fugues sparked by searching symptoms. Um, sir, please define... Siri, please define Welschmerz. Welschmerz, however you pronounce that. These are our quotidian interactions, a call and response which, with that which is coming. Are we nurturing an abiogenesis, the birth of our ultimate savior? Dear Internet, how do I cope with suicidal feelings? Feelings? What is feelings? You mean loneliness? Try live chat. Having a panic attack? There's an app for that. I had to use it tonight. Sad? Oh, you mean that emoji. Weeping seems the only appropriate response to the now. It's pretty much all I ever do. In a few decades flat, our human inheritance has reduced itself to binary bits of symbol, archival material, flickers of data, video phones, and scattered ASCIIs. They say the times we're traveling in are better than they've ever been. I don't know about you, but I feel paralyzed in this present, frozen in a rainbow pinwheel of death. Wishing for a crash. And we've been told not to mourn the inevitable end of the world as we know it. The boomers were the preachers of this great broadband baptismal. And they all say, baby, it's going to be okay. Trust us, honey. Why? Because internet. It used to be in our nature to look away from suffering, to close our eyes to the darkness. Now we lie awake in the night, basking in our blue light watching people die, goats jump on trampolines, and porn so specific, it's as if it were shot to order from the fabric of our cookies. But don't you see that thing in our peripheral? Don't you feel that creepy sinking feeling? The knowing. Not many of us know how to fix our old phone, but we do know how to buy a new one. So the way I figure it is, internet equals primordial soup. Many, many giga anim ago, there was a gradual transformation of the Earth. And today, in a brief, brief geological instant, we've nearly completed another kind of transformation. We and our machines working like bacteria, belching oxygen into the atmosphere. You and me mulching up trails of data to make this place habitable. In short, we're terraforming the world for that which is coming, which has always been arriving. We are the bottom feeders, turning death into life and data into consciousness, all in the service of something. Something that won't require the specifications we do. What environmental collapse occurs, when environmental collapse occurs, it will have no need for air or water or shelter from the storm. But what is it, this unknowable entity? Does that shark know what it's trying to sabotage? The intruder in its, sil in its silty bed. I like to think that the shark actually probably knows. So those are my thoughts about all of this. <laughs> Some really brief ones. Thank you. Sophia, Ben, if you have any neologisms to contribute for our ever growing archive. As Cedric Price would have said, well, it's urgent. The urgency. I'll go since I'm on the far right. Um, you're, you're the youngest too. <laughs> the, it occurred to me while reading that and just thinking right now, that which is coming has become this sort of short-term, short, shorthand in my head for this sort of Voldemort-like phrase for the singularity. Um, and it's time-sensitive because it will stop being an accurate description as soon as it arrives. Um, I'd like an uh, entrepreneur, somebody who starts new businesses, creates new things, but doesn't tell anyone about it. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Just like, yeah, well done, you got a new business. Shut up, Jesus. <laughs> I love the fact that, that a huge entrepreneurial revolution could be going on right now. We'll never yeah, know. It would be amazing. <laughs> we'll know. never know. Just like, you know, <laughs> ma ma entrepreneurial magazines with nobody on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Dan? Uh, I'm going to stick with IQTs, IQTs. Uh, the obsession with intelligence. You heard it here first. Yes, I did. And Mike, did you... Well, I was going to say podcast, but it's been taken already. Oh, so. goddammit. <laughs> At which point, we, the, the asteroid has, has hit planet Earth. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much to um, all our guests uh, on our right who feel that much older than the three of us here on the left. Um, thank you to everyone who's made our book possible. Uh, our names may be on the front, but by no means is it a book by us. So thank you uh, to Wayne, to all our artists, to everyone at Penguin, Cassiana, Annabelle, everyone, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you, last but not least, to all of you for joining us this evening. Um, go buy our book. Make us happy and rich. Doug? Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>